I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So today we have a really awesome episode. We were able to sit down with uh, with our previous guest, Paul Brom, as he introduced us to a fantastic scientist in the world of cardiology, Dr. Thomas Porter. Dr. Porter comes to us by way of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, uh, where he serves as a professor of internal medicine and the Hubbard Chair of Cardiology and has won several awards for his outstanding research that we are going to be introducing to you today. In reference to Dr. Porter's background, I will uh, he does a great job of introducing himself in the conversation, but I do want to introduce his topic that he's going to be speaking on, which is uh, his research over the past several years, which essentially has taken ultrasound from a diagnostic tool to an interventional therapy. Um, and this therapy that I'm talking about is called sonothrombolysis. So essentially, in layman's terms, Dr. Porter and his team has been able to utilize microbubbles uh, found within ultrasound contrast agents uh, that are typically used for better detection of coronary artery disease during stress testing. Uh, however, what they have figured out is that you can actually utilize these diagnostic ultrasound tools to actually dissolve blood clots that uh, may be causing MIs and CVAs. With all that to say, it's a great opportunity to sit down and hear from Dr. Porter uh, what has gone into his research and his vision for the future. As you listen to the episode, you'll see that Dr. Porter is a champion of EMS and sees that this is a potential therapy that EMS is going to be able to be involved with. So without further ado, let's go ahead and listen to what Dr. Porter has to say. I want everybody to hear this. Everything I know about perfusion and sonothrombolysis comes from this man. I've been stalking him since I first started watching all about this, and he's been gracious enough to host me in his lab a couple times. Right, right, right. And uh, So, Dr. Porter, would you start with just kind of giving us your background and, you know, where you trained and how you uh, kind of came about as in being in this space as an expert? Well, I uh, trained uh, at, I did medical school in Nebraska, but then went to Medical College of Virginia or Virginia Commonwealth for uh, internal medicine, residency, and cardiology uh, fellowship and got involved with the ultrasound enhancing agent area just because I uh, was very interested in echocardiography, but also very interested in uh, hemodynamics and, and, uh, and the uh, physiologic evaluation of, of coronary artery disease. And the techniques that we were using during my fellowship were, uh, and still used today, are somewhat archaic in that they involve nuclear imaging. And that uh, has a lot of problems with it in terms of being able to be what we call a myocardial perfusion agent. Uh, despite the fact that it has the FDA approval, it's, it's missing a lot of coronary disease and not able to be utilized on the scale we needed to manage these patients. So the microbubbles are free intravascular tracers that uh, we uh, have developed over the years into agents that survive long enough in the bloodstream that they can be analyzed, detected by ultrasound, 
and using some uh, uh, brief, what we call high mechanical index. And what I mean by mechanical index is it's a high kind of power ultrasound, clear the myo microvasculature of these uh, free uh, intravascular tracers, following which we can analyze their replenishment. Now that analyzing the replenishment is very helpful because it'll, the rate of replenishment uh, of the microbubbles within the microcirculation is a, a marker of red blood cell velocity. Uh, and then they reach a kind of a plateau intensity uh, with the kind of imaging techniques we have now. Um, and that plateau intensity reflects the capillary cross-sectional area. And since the capillaries are the kind of major regulator of blood flow during any kind of hyperemic stress, uh, this bedside technique allows us to look at myocardial blood flow uh, almost routinely whenever we're doing a regular echocardiogram or a stress echocardiogram. And that's provided a lot of valuable information in evaluating patients with chest pain. Uh, and so we've gotten involved with studies with that, uh, both resting and stress uh, perfusion imaging protocols that uh, have um, been very helpful in improving our detection of coronary artery disease, but more importantly, detecting microvascular disease, uh, which is also a very important problem uh, that we really don't have a, a good technique to uh, to analyze that with. Um, and the, the, this technique has opened the door for us to do that. The stepping back a second that I talked to you about that high power mechanical index impulse, when that, when the, uh, incidentally, when the microbubbles are destroyed by that, which kind of clears the microvasculature and allows us then like during a continuous infusion of the microbubbles to analyze the uh, uh, my, my microvascular perfusion, uh, the high mechanical impulse, the way it destroys them is, is a process called cavitation, which, uh, and that kind of involves a rapid growth and collapse of these microbubbles. And surprisingly, when that process occurs, whether it's next to the endothelium or next to a blood clot, uh, it'll shear uh, the endothelium and cause nitric oxide release. Uh, or if it's next to a thrombus, it'll shear off the thrombus and kind of destroy a, 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 a small thrombus that may be present within the, the uh, microvasculature or within a larger blood vessel. So we've actually used the technique for both diagnostic purposes to analyze uh, perfusion, uh, but also that high mechanical index impulse for the potential therapeutic applications. So how did, how did uh, you get into some of the recent stuff that you're doing with some of the acute, some of the STEMI stuff? You know, you guys uh, published in Jack in 2019, uh, some of the results of a kind of a small trial. Can you tell us how uh, you kind of went about that? Well, it, the whole process that we discovered that that, that cavitation process could uh, from the micro was uh, that was back in about 1996 <laughs> when we made that discovery. And so subsequent to that, we uh, started testing this in, in animal models and got NIH funding over the 2000 to 2010 era uh, that uh, demonstrated that in large animals where we create a, 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 a left anterior descending thrombus. Uh, and which is, you know, a very large, usually creates a very large infarct in a, a pig model. We're out here in Nebraska, lots of pigs. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so we uh, could create this model very nicely and demonstrate just the kind of things we see in patients. ST segment elevation on the EKG it reproduced that situation. So we tested this uh, diagnostic high mechanical index impulse to see if it could actually improve that uh, recanalization in this pig model. And it worked. So once we had that data, we could go to the FDA 
uh, and and say, listen, we have this data. It shows it's safe. It looks like it's an, uh, a way to not only improve the breaking up of the blood clot in the coronary artery, but also improving this blood flow downstream in the microvasculature because current therapeutic techniques like balloon or stents um, that are used in acute ST segment elevation myocardial uh, infarction are very good for opening up the epicardial vessel, but they leave us with a huge amount in up to 60% of patients a large amount of microvascular obstruction. And that's where we were proposing to the FDA that we could uh, potentially uh, uh, re resolve that problem since uh, already at that time, 2010, 2015, uh, the, obviously the primary PCI was the main treatment for acute uh, uh, ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. So we weren't gonna probably get in the door with a pre and a post like we were doing in the pig bottle. Now in Brazil though, uh, in Sao Paulo, uh, uh, there's a long time in getting to the cath lab after you have chest pain. It, it, it's a it's a very uh, uh, it's a city that's very tra traffic heavy. Um, so a lot of patients are waiting in the ambulances just to get to the hospital. Uh, and when they get to the hospital, surprisingly, there's still some time period there where uh, they may have to wait to get in the cath lab, even though they're having an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. So I had a very good colleague, Wilson Mathias, that uh, was very interested in this project too, who was director of the Echo Lab in, at San Paulo uh, Medical Center. And, and so we began a randomized controlled trial there where we applied this before and after uh, uh, angioplasty or uh, PCI, percutaneous coronary intervention. Uh, and that's where that 2019 paper came from uh, that demonstrated that uh, if we applied it even for a few minutes before the patient got to the cath lab, we had a uh, significantly higher epicardial recanalization rate. And if we continue to apply it again after, right after the PCI, we actually reduce the myocardial infarct size and improve the patient's uh, systolic function all the way up to six months following the infarct, uh, which resulted in a significantly lower number of patients that needed a defibrillator uh, because their pumping function improved. Uh, so that led us to go to the FDA and what the FDA would allow us to do uh, would be just to do the post PCI because we didn't have a real good way of getting into the ambulances yet, which would, uh, uh, which would be, you know, where we'd have to do it in this country if we were going to have any chance of getting this applied before they got to the cath lab, because in this country, it's fairly, most hospitals pretty rapidly get the patient to the cath lab if they get to the hospital. Uh, it may take a little while from the ambulance, and that's where we were, were hoping to eventually be able to use some smaller ultrasound systems, uh, even some version of the uh, what Paul is talking about of the point of care systems to use in the ambulance before the patient gets to the hospital. But that we are doing an ongoing trial now uh, uh, looking at uh, post what we call post-PCI sonothrombolysis to see if we can improve microvascular flow uh, and reduce the infarct size uh, in these patients with large uh, anterior wall myocardial infarctions. That's so that just, just anterior wall right now, yeah, that's what you're right, looking at? Foot in this country. Now in the Netherlands, um, uh, they are looking at large infarctions. I'm working with a group there that's uh, just looking at large uh, infarctions, including anterior wall and large inferior or inferior posterior infarctions. And then in Australia, there's a group that's um, actually has an ongoing trial that we're working on uh, where we're looking at pre and post versus post only uh, in a randomized controlled trial. So a couple of follow-up on that. Are you using any kind of measurement? For instance, we were talking earlier uh, about some of the stuff that was at uh, ACC 
2022, um, just this past weekend. And there was, uh, you know, a lot of talk about uh, FFR, CTFFR, um, you know, it was pointed out uh, that, you know, only 95% of the blood flow lies in the epicardial arteries and, you know, 90, you know, I'm sorry, 95% of the, of the blood is actually in the microvasculature um, and that we don't necessarily appreciate that. Like you said, we get those arteries open with uh, balloons and stents and, you know, we've done things like, uh, you know, uh, frame counts on blush and, you know, trying to see the perfusion in the myocardium. Are you using any kind of um, measurement like FFR before and after to um, kind of see how the microvascular flow is going? Well, that, that's an interesting uh, concept. We, we do have a, the flow wire uh, that we have been uh, using that allows us to look at microvascular uh, resistance. And the group in Australia is actually doing that right now, looking at a microvascular uh, flow dynamically, uh, you know, as a function of the application of the high mechanical dex impulses. They don't have all the, any of the data on that yet, but that will allow us to, to determine whether uh, some of the invasive hemodynamic measurements are uh, would be effective at giving us an idea uh, of the uh, therapy. Right now, of course, we're looking at just by MRI at 48 and 72 hours, and then again at, at six to eight weeks, how much the microvascular flow uh, has improved um, uh, and how much the microvascular obstruction, I say, has decreased and how much the infarct size has decreased over that time period, uh, which is our first primary objective. But, but it is one of our secondary objectives to do some of these uh, more uh, uh, these assessments that, that can be done while in the cath lab. Um, the problem with that, of course, it involves us doing the sonothrombolysis while the patient's lying on the table in the cath lab so we can kind of see some of the acute effects of that uh, because usually they're in and out and then we do the, we're able to position the patient a little bit better to get better uh, sonothrombolysis. One of the big limitations of the technique is, is that, you know, getting that someone to do this ultrasound, we really need to kind of move that to a kind of a hands-free type of a system uh, that would allow us to do that. So things like you're talking about could be done in the uh, cath lab while the patient's getting the intervention uh, so that we can uh, get a better assessment of how it's working and be able to apply this simultaneously with the uh, uh, epicardial uh, you know, treatments. Dr. Porter, um, if you don't mind going into some, some granular detail for our listeners who are probably uh, pre-hospital providers. So paramedics, you know, they know what PCI is. They're um, frequently involved with stis, uh, STEMI systems of care. However, sonothrombolysis may be a completely new concept to them. How would you break that down step-by-step uh, step in order to explain to a new, you know, somebody who's not familiar with it at all? Well, they probably are a little bit familiar with ultrasound because uh, guys like Paul uh, have been out there uh, promoting the point of care ultrasound and, and probably some of them have probably dabbled a little bit in it. Um, uh, but what we're talking about is that same type of ultrasound impulse they're using uh, to image the patient or get a quick picture of the heart or the abdomen, uh, like a lot of emergency care uh, uh, personnel are able to do. Now we'd be talking about using that therapeutic. Um, that same tool uh, can be modified slightly um, on pretty much all the systems to apply what we call a high mechanical index impulse briefly to the heart and then, you know, uh, reapply it uh, intermittently for a period of time. That technique that they're using to image um, is also has the potential for therapy, um, uh, uh, especially if it can cause these microbubbles to cavitate and cause that shear. And 
So uh, the best way for me to, to kind of explain to them would be it's basically extending their, what they already know they can do with ultrasound diagnostically as emergency care personnel uh, and taking those same tools and applying them potentially therapeutically with the same instrument they're using. Uh, and I think that's very possible and uh, would potentially uh, save lives and uh, you know, save scar formation, prevent scar formation, which is what really is what leads to so many complications after uh, uh, myocardial infarction. Um, and so that's the best way I could explain to them is, you know, if they're familiar with ultrasound then, uh, as a diagnostic tool uh, for them, then um, uh, they think of it as now being a potential therapeutic tool uh, applied almost in a, a similar way to what they're using it diagnostically. You know, that's such an important point because I think we've, uh, you know, I, I hate to say we solved the problem, but door to balloon, we pretty much got the times down enough to our, our mortality rate of STEMIs is actually pretty low in the United States. So it's, uh, and I think you're, you're right. The next step here is how do we save people from heart failure? How do we save people from um, just, you know, life? but then how do we keep them out of the hospital? How do we have a, you know, a good quality of life? When, you, when you're talking about um, delivering this type of therapy, are we talking about um, you know, seconds, minutes? Uh, how, how long do some of these, if we have you know, uh, people that say, well, I only have 10 minutes to the hospital or I have 30 minutes to the hospital, what, what's kind of the sweet spot for this type of therapy potentially uh, to take place? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, and we're not really, I can't give you a firm answer on that right now, but we do know in that Brazil trial that a, a period of time as short as 10 minutes of pre uh, sonothrombolysis uh, was uh, effective at getting that 50% epicardial recanalization rate by the time that uh, the, the, the first angiogram uh, was done. Um, that compares with the control group and uh, a reference group that we had of about 200 patients that where it was 20%. So, and that was periods of time of just 10 minutes. It was the, uh, there were a little bit, some that got longer times, but periods as short as 10 minutes were seemed to be effective. In the Australian trial, uh, although this data hasn't been uh, published yet, it, it appears that that short period of time was also, was, uh, was pretty much a more consistent uh, time period uh, and also produced a, a, a fairly high epicardial recanalization rate. And then the post-PCI period of time is basically whatever it takes to get one vial of the standard ultrasound enhancing agent in, uh, which is usually diluted into about like a 3% solution. So it's about a 20-minute infusion. Surprisingly, those little 20-minute uh, periods of time afterwards and 10 minutes uh, pre seem to have a long-term effect uh, all the way out to six months, at least is what we have right now in terms of uh, preservation of ejection fraction. Uh, improvement in left ventricular strain uh, and uh, the reduction in the need for the defibrillator. But that's uh, those, again, like I said, are just early observations from like, as you pointed out, small studies, uh, but they are small randomized studies and they do seem to uh, consistently show that periods of time as short as 10 minutes may be effective. So, so you put out your, your example, the 10 minute wait to the ambulance, we could potentially be doing a lot in that time period other than giving a mask for an So have you approached any um, EMS services or any leadership about what it would take to potentially do a trial like this in pre-hospital? Yes, we, uh, our uh, EMS system was, was somewhat interested in it, though, uh, again, we 
tried our first feasibility study with it in Amsterdam, where they have a very nice organized, uh, almost like 10 ambulance systems that all go to one hospital. Uh, and the goal was to try to get it in at least five. Um, uh, and we're petitioning industry to give us five systems. The problem was their initial system was more like a laptop. And even uh, something that size is, is almost too big to get in an ambulance. So we've asked now for funding to use the Lumify device uh, from Phelps, which is basically truly a handheld system, which has a modality on it that gets you a 1.3 mechanical index. Uh, and which is one that uh, um, emergency care personnel are somewhat familiar with. Um, so we're hoping that now we can organize something we just need in the United States. Amsterdam is, is going to proceed in that direction now. Um, in the United States, we need to kind of find where do we have a kind of a very well organized uh, system where one, you know, a good number of patients are going to one hospital where we can, you know, do the kind of study where five of the, the ambulances have the system, five don't and look at the outcomes in these patients. That's what we're looking for. Looking forward into that, looking at essentially implementing this into a a systemic approach with pre-hospital providers, what type of, if any, uh, side effects or adverse reactions could could be expected or, uh, or, you know, thought about? Now, that's a very good question, too, uh, because it, it, it appears that the downside is pretty minimal here, because if I, unlike TPA, where if I gave uh, uh, this to a patient with pericarditis, uh, gave TPA to someone with pericarditis, that might be causing some significant complications. If I happened to do this wrong in the ambulance and gave the enhancing agents to someone that was actually having just pericarditis or non-cardiac pain or ST elevation for spasm or something like that, uh, it seemed to be very safe. The, the instance of any adverse effects uh, are uh, like anaphylaxis, or um, we know that they could potentially occur with uh, uh, the agent we're using now, which is the FDA approved agent, Lanthius, uh, or uh, Definity. Um, but it's pretty rare. It's probably in the one to five to 10,000 risk there for an adverse reaction. Other than that, this seems to be very well tolerated and safe. Obviously, we use it thousands and thousands of time a year in our echo labs all the time already. So the safety data seems to be pretty good and the downside seems to be pretty minimal. Uh, the, the real kind of issue there is, do we infuse it or should we give little boluses? So that's mm. a little bit easier to do. The, the original trials we've been doing now have been an infusion. So someone basically standing there infusing this agent, that's not going to be feasible in an ambulance. You're probably going to have to have someone just give a little bolus injection every now and then right. uh, uh, so that they don't have to be kind of constantly preoccupied with uh, with giving the agent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you, know, you, you say hang, um, you know, infusion drips. That can be a little bit cumbersome sometimes, especially without having access to IV pumps and and that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, that makes it appear to work. So it, it might be the quickest way to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Can you speak? Um, I, I noticed in some of the literature that this has been used um, in applications in stroke as well. Is is this the same method or is the different uh, kind of way they go about that? Yeah, we've, we've been very frustrated with the way the neurologist has approached this because we thought this would be an even bigger application potentially for stroke because of the, uh, the, the downtime, a lot of times that uh, are waited to get something done, even now with the clot extraction therapies that are available, uh, there's still considerable downtime um, and a considerable problem with, with a lack of neurologic recovery. 
and the trans, even the diagnostic post for transtemporal ultrasound we have shown in pig models uh, work to improve cerebral blood flow in these situations. Uh, but they haven't like, really, you know, done it that way. They've, they've either tested uh, microbubbles as an adjunct to TPA um, or uh, they've, uh, uh, you know, given uh, the ultrasound alone with TPA without the microbubbles. Um, and so, and those trials have been, have been somewhat effective, but the ultrasound that was used was either a, a pulse Doppler ultrasound, like a two megahertz pulse Doppler ultrasound, um, the so-called clot bus trial. Uh, and then the Tucson trial and, and some of these other trials were using non-imaging uh, transducers. Um, so uh, we, I've pleaded with our own uh, stroke uh, uh, group here that we should at least try to do that. Um, uh, and uh, it just hasn't materialized yet. I think it would be an excellent application though, because again, it, the same things we're talking about apply here. Uh, if we can get something going in the ambulance to these patients, I think we have a much better chance of getting improved neurologic recovery, which is still by uh, far and away our biggest problem today. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, Dr. Porter, I want to thank you. Uh, this has been um, fascinating. We, we uh, won't take up any more of your time. Um, this, uh, you know, as, as we are always looking for ways to enhance our systems of care, uh, you know, we have already shown with STEMI, cardiac arrest and other things that getting the, uh, the treatment to patients faster uh, in EMS has shown to be a huge benefit. If people want to know more about the work that you're doing, what, what are some of the uh, resources they can use uh, for any try any studies that you have done that maybe they could look up or anything that they should be on the lookout for um, or any, any way that they may want to get their medical directors or some of their institutions involved with doing uh, something like this, perhaps? Well, please yeah, just email me. I think Paul has my email number. I think you guys have a trporter at unmc.edu. And because I think we do really need to see develop a working group in this area. The FDA is, uh, like I said, is involved and has been actually quite helpful in uh, getting these trials started. We petitioned the NIH for a multi-center study uh, and mm. did not get funded for that. That's why we have gone to uh, Brazil, back to Brazil and Amsterdam to do the uh, multinational study instead. But I really think that if we could organize uh, a working group here, it would be helpful to you know get a, a, a well-funded clinical trial that would you know be involved multiple sites. Uh, I think now that we know the protocols. Uh, it would be, even though we don't have quite the, the, the hands-free ultrasound system yet, we still, I think, need to do a multi-center trial, even with the larger diagnostic systems we have now, to see if we can have an impact uh, as we move forward into, into more hands-free ultrasound and, and artificial intelligence that will help us to apply these systems and then they can apply the, the high mechanical index impulses when they sense microbubbles. Um, uh, I think we'll, we'll work toward that direction, but in the meantime, um, please contact me and, and, and we can hopefully get a working group started. Yeah, well, we look forward to that. Um, so uh, thank you again. Really appreciate your time, your expertise, um, and we look forward to uh, seeing the work that you're going to be doing in the future. Well, thank you, Jason and Brandon, and good seeing you, Paul. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good seeing you too. I guess I'll see you in Seattle in a couple yes, months. Huh? Yes, yes, yeah. That'll be that'll be. A oh, when are we when are we going to Seattle? I I missed that invitation. June, <laughs> June. I'll take you. That's right. 
<laughs> it's been a, such a long time. This is our first in-person meeting. We are getting back together again, but I look, but great, but also kind of weird and eerie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, all right. Thank you. You've been listening to MediClass Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.mediclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.